You can't ever make it so that it didn't happen, but you can make it better than it would have been because you were there. So much of what we deal with, it's invisible. Change is messy and hard. It takes time. Hey y'all, Amy here. I am the producer of Remember Why You're Here, and I am super excited for today's episode because we are speaking with one of three incredible presenters, Dr. Lynette Lau, who will be at CIR's pre-conference happening in January 2024 as part of the International Conference on Child and Family Maltreatment at the Chadwick Center in San Diego. Also joining us today is one of our longtime trainers and dear friend, Dr. Lauren Malpe. CIR's pre-conference named Building Cultural Competence to Serve the Whole Child and Family will help you build an action-oriented and intersectional foundation that will serve you through the rest of the conference with confidence to see beyond trauma. To register for this special event, visit the link in the show notes. Dr. Lynette Lau is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in trauma-informed systems of care and has extensive experience working with marginalized communities and foster care and leads initiatives for inclusion, diversity, and equity at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Lauren Malfi is also based at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center and has a strong educational background in clinical psychology and a wealth of professional experience, including roles as a licensed child psychologist and a supervising forensic psychologist. She has presented and trained on a range of topics in the field, including trauma treatment and child behavioral disorders. Lynette, let's start with you. What do you currently do? So currently I am still involved in training and I recently got promoted in the program. So I used to be just a a line item like psychologist involved in seeing clients in our outpatient clinic, training pre and postdoctoral students in psychology. I've been doing countywide trainings in best practices for the birth through five population because I have specializations in infant mental health and early childhood mental health. So those are the things I used to do. And since my promotion, I think I've taken more of a larger programmatic stand. So I'm straddling both the child and the adult clinics, outpatient clinics now in terms of thinking about process and procedure, streamlining things for access to care for our patient population who might call in for services while still doing a bunch of training. I am the supervising forensic psychologist at Harbor UCLA Kids Hub, which is in the Department of Pediatrics. We are a multidisciplinary team center, a hospital-based MDT. So we conduct forensic interviews, forensic medical exams in cases of suspected child abuse, but our clinic also provides medical care for newly detained youth. And then I also rotate in a clinic for prenatally substance exposed infants and youth providing some psychological assessment there, and then some support consultation and liaison. And then I teach and train forensic interviewers, both at my clinic, but also throughout the state of California with CIR, which has been such a joy over the years, and have recently started doing more expert testimony. So I provide expert testimony about CSAS or child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome. Lauren, tell us about a specific moment that inspired you to stay with your journey. 
So I actually started my work in child maltreatment in 2008 when I got a position at Harvard UCLA in the child trauma clinic as part of my graduate training. I was supposed to be there two days a week. And I was a little bit panicked about starting. I was like, I don't even know if I like kids. Like, I don't know what to do in the room with a kid. And it was such a meaningful year of growth. I still remember the very first kid that I met with. I still have a little photo album thank you book that he and his mom made for me. And that year, I got a couple of other opportunities outside of that sort of formal training program that really moved me. And I would say probably are part of like an aha moment of like, I do want to do this work. Our clinic director had been contacted and looped me in as well um, for a family where there had been um, a homicide within the family. And we had to tell two of the children in the family about the homicide that had happened and the subsequent incarceration and some other difficult things. Their caregiver was not able to do that for them, unfortunately. And so I remember driving to the hospital that day and just thinking like, what am I doing? Like, who signs up for this? This is like awful. This is just awful. And then I remember kind of thinking, it seems like there's sort of two responses to trauma. Like either you, like as a, as a helping professional, either like you move towards it or you move away from it. And I just remember thinking, like, or noticing, like, I want to move towards it. Like I find myself sort of seeking out opportunities to be more involved in some of these really painful moments. And after that day, I remember being pretty tearful after that session with the family and my supervisor at the time, I remember her telling me that you can't ever make it so that it didn't happen, but you can make it better than it would have been because you were there. And that has always stuck with me as kind of a guiding principle that you can make it better than it would have been by your presence. That's really inspiring. And Lynette, what about your journey and your aha moment? So I took four years off between undergrad and grad school trying to decide what I wanted to do for my path. Somewhere along the line, I got really interested in brain science. And so that's what I do now is I, I became really interested in understanding how brains work and how that expresses itself in behavior. And I think on some level, and I discovered this in the middle of grad school, when I was like, you know, I feel like I am maybe not catching everything that's getting said. And so I you know, went to my student counseling services and I got diagnosed with ADHD in, I think, my first or second year of grad school, right? And it's so like, oh, this makes a lot of sense now. But in this very ADHD way, all these areas of interest kind of just converged. And then I would say towards the end of grad school, after, and actually, yeah, after I graduated, I started getting really interested in neurodiversity and really thinking about equity for neurodivergent individuals, just, just because of my own journey and kind of really thinking about what that has been like and what our current systems are like. And that's what landed me to today, like really talking and teaching about equity, just generally across the broad board, right? So equity and inclusive practices for divergent populations, not just for the neurodivergent, but really thinking about across all the different intersectionalities that we can really think about. But I do have a special passion for like talking about equity and inclusion for neurodivergent individuals because so much of what we deal with, it's invisible, 
And so like the more we talk about it, the more people understand like, oh, wait a minute, like that that wasn't even on my radar before. And hopefully more and more of those blind spots are getting revealed as, as we talk more about it. It's such an interesting parallel, Lynette, because I, so I'm also certified in infant, parent, early childhood, mental health. And I was trained very psychodynamically in my grad program. And then at my externships and my internships was very behavioral, very CBT. And I was really struggling how to put those together. And I found infant mental health and a sort of a neuro-relational framework as the point of intersection, sort of the nexus of those two ways of understanding people. And I do think a neuro-relational framework and understanding more about sort of gene environment interaction is a great way to sort of integrate lots of different fields of study right? And ironically, I was also diagnosed with ADHD during grad school. Actually, sorry, on internship. Yeah, because that journey for women is just like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. It's so hard. We don't recognize it until like further down the line. Can we just define neuro-relational framework for myself and everyone else? The neuro-relational framework is a framework that was put together by Connie Lilas. And it's, it's this idea of like really looking at neurological bases of, I would say, relating to others. Like so so attachment. The, the, yeah, yeah, attachment really. And so if you think about the biological bases of behavior, right, all, all of us on a day-to-day basis, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent. We sense threat. We know, like, uh, we're constantly like scanning for threat and danger in our environment, and, and different parts of our, our brain get activated, right? And so the, the idea is that when we feel safe with other people, when when we perceive safety, then we are then able to relate better with other people and connect better with other others, and that then enables us to do higher order work such as learning and planning and, and all the things that usually we want to see in like in, in terms of executive functioning. Does that cover it, Lauren? It's like safety is sort of the necessary precondition for ongoing development, which is I think what I like about the neuro-relational framework is that it uses science, like sort of hard sciences, to sort of describe or explain what attachment theorists have maybe observed for a long time. And so it brings those two together. But I think that framework is really relevant for anyone doing child maltreatment work, whether it's assessment, forensic interviews, treatment, because of the emphasis on safety and relational co-regulation. I will say, like, if you do a deep dive, looking more into this framework, you'll see like intersecting circles of meaning making and your just biological systems and and so like all the things that we do on a moment to moment basis because at any given moment we're all making meaning of what all is happening right so like there's this podcast that's happening right now and i could approach this as like hey this is like a scary thing or like my meaning making of it's like hey i'm getting together people i like to talk about things that are fun for us to talk about so depending on the meaning making right it then changes your neurological response to the situation which then translates itself into behaviors that you might be seeing that may or may not be problematic so kind of like they're more reactive to their environment both in positive and negative ways you're going to grow anywhere or you're going to grow under very specific conditions on some level right translates quite a bit to neurodivergent individuals right absolutely absolutely One of the things that's just so wild about my job is that at this point, like I have forensically interviewed 
hundreds of children and teenagers, largely about sexual abuse. And I am constantly struck by both the overwhelming similarity of their experiences and the overwhelming divergence of their experience and who is really sort of bowled over by that traumatic experience and who has some resources, some psychological resource to respond and adapt, right, in the situation. But it's really interesting too, because we also interview the parents before the forensic interview. And that also I find gives us a lot of very helpful information when we're thinking about how the child is responding to the sexual abuse in the context of their family system, which may or may not also have intergenerational child maltreatment. First of all, Lauren and I both got diagnosed in grad school. And I think part of it is that I'm going to speak for myself. I had a bunch of compensatory mechanisms in terms of keeping my grades up. I would just study in the very last minute. And thankfully, like cognitively, I had enough skill to kind of like pull it all together at the last minute. But if you look at my report cards going way back to when I was in elementary school, it was a lot of like, has room for growth, ha you know, has like, seem very talkative, like all of these things that you that you would tick off. Every report card, like talks too much, talks out of turn. So many ideas, so many ideas, can't stop talking about them. Needs to be a little bit more focused to realize her full potential, right? So there was a lot of that. And if you look back now, you're like, oh, obviously you had ADHD, like you have had ADHD your entire life, right? But the reality of it is that I didn't get diagnosed until I was like really struggling and I went to see someone. And I was being trained as a student in clinical psychology, being able to assess for some of these things, right? So, and that wasn't even something that was on my radar. And I really think it's because like the diagnostic criteria that we have for different mental disorders has been so heavily based on white males mm -hmm. that if you don't present like the typical white male with that disorder or disability, like we don't see it. Like, at, like when I was growing up, I don't think anyone knew that sometimes girls display hyperactivity and impulsivity via verbal hyperexpression as opposed to physical, right? So the fact that I could not stop talking, I could not inhibit that impulse was maybe a little bit of a a red flag, but people just thought, try harder. Or emotional impulsivity, right? And so mm -hmm. you see those big jumps. In, and a lot of women who are ADHDers tend to get diagnosed as bipolar or borderline because of that emotional impulsivity that we might be seeing. In terms of like my own story, it's like, so I got diagnosed in grad school, right? And, and years later, a pandemic happened. I think, okay, it's time to probably get back on meds because the pandemic's really doing a number on my my mental health. And my ability to focus. So I went to my primary care physician, who then referred me to the psychiatry department. It took me about four months to make that phone call after that referral to get connected, to set up an appointment. Then they had a social worker interview me on the phone and then transferred me to a psychiatrist. And I told them all the things I needed to. And then they're like, okay, so the next step is either you get me those records from grad school that showed this diagnosis, or you complete this questionnaire and also have a friend or family member write a letter about what they notice about your symptoms. Okay, so I've managed my ADHD behaviorally for a good amount of time now. So I got, I knew if I didn't get done right away, I wouldn't get it done. So I got the questionnaire to him pretty much right away. 
But the other steps, okay, so this is where like ADHDers have like difficulty of multi-step instructions sometimes and follow through. I know, Lauren, I've spoken to you multiple times about this letter that I need a friend to write for me. This was... This started like three years ago. Yeah, I know. I know. This was a while ago, right? So finally, I happened to be at UCLA for a different conference recently, earlier this year, I think back in April. I brought all the paperwork with me and I got a copy of like my mental health records. So the next step I need to do is to scan them in to and upload them to my to my psychiatrist so that he can see it and then prescribe me the meds. Don't even get in, into like the fact that there's a national shortage of, of meds for ADHD right now, right? But right. like, so have I done that step? No, I haven't. Because the, the things that you want an ADHD to do to jump through the hoops mm-hmm. to prove that they have ADHD are exactly the things that we struggle with. Right. right. Or or like once they write you the prescription, it's with no refills, right? Because it's a controlled substance. So every month I have to remember on a certain date to call my doctor before I'm out of meds, by the way, I have to remember to call my doctor and say, I'm almost out of meds. Can you please call the pharmacy? Then when the pharmacy fills the prescription in some magical world where there's an Adderall or stimulants or whatever we're short of, calls me to say it's ready for pickup, I have to remember to go get it at a certain time, right? Like we're really banking on working memory there. We're really banking on like executive functioning, which is literally one of the dysfunctions of ADHD. So it's a little problematic. A lot of women get missed because of how the diagnostic criteria in the DSM are patterned on white male people, right? I would say that's true for ADHD and autism. But if you think about depression and anxiety, we're frequently looking at how women express depression and anxiety. And so like, if you think about gender bias, like, and, and this is talking about gender in a very binary way, right? So in the DSM, you're going to see like all the criteria for, for depression and anxiety is going to look a lot more like how women express certain things about their lives. When we look at prevalence rates of, oh, there are many more women who are depressed and anxious compared to men. We're also doing a disservice to them there because of the way we perceive things in our diagnostic criteria. And a disservice to males or non-binary folks who exactly that aren't presenting symptoms that way, just like we're exactly. doing a disservice to girls and women and non-binary folks who don't present with autism like a four-year-old boy who's interested in trains. Right? Exactly. And then when you get these things combined, so someone who is ADHD, autistic and an ADHD on some level, sometimes those those symptoms cancel each other out, right? Because if you mm-hmm. think about an ADHD, you it's someone who's like stimulus seeking. They're like interested in risk and, and novelty. They're seeking all these. But then the autistic side of them says, no, I want everything to be the same. I, I like patterns. I like routine. It kind of cancels itself out sometimes in, in such a way that people miss it. And the other thing that happens, I will say, is that there's a lot of spikiness involved in these disabilities in the sense that on certain days I can perform just like that and it doesn't take me a lot of effort. But on other days, I know I need to get the thing done. Can I get myself up to do the thing? No, I can't get myself up to do the thing. Or so people will go, well, you were able to do it last week. Why can't you do it now? Right. And it's just a function of how this disability works. So with all of this said, do you, either of you or both of you have any advice for how neurodivergent folks can maybe have support when navigating these very difficult processes? I think a lot of it boils down to 
understanding your condition and being able to self-advocate. The nice thing is that there's a lot more in social media now that that's raising awareness about how like these different conditions present. And I know like people are going to say, oh, not everybody who says, oh, I have all these things that comes into my office for an assessment is going to be an autistic person or an ADHD or this is, you know, you're just self-identifying on the wrong scale. But like on some level, having this awareness is important because then you can start that conversation with your service provider say, hey, I think this is what's happening to me. Can we go down this route to to explore it? Now, obviously, there's a range of service providers in terms of people who are hip to the different ways in which these different disabilities and disorders can present. And then there are people who are not. So I think being linked with other self-advocates is, is really important. Being, you know, trying to find providers who are at least on the path to trying to be open about like different ways things can present, I think is super important. And, and it might just take trips to maybe one, two different, three different people. Like it, it depends, right? It really depends on, on who you find and who is, who's available to you. But finding someone who is open and sympathetic to equity and neurodiversity, I think is super important. Yeah. And I think especially for related to ADHD in particular, especially for women, finding providers who believe you about your symptoms. I was like, initially when my, my diagnosis actually happened sort of accidentally at first, like I was learning to give a continuous performance test. And so my supervisor said, take it so that you can learn what it's like to give it. And I took it and I said, oh, well, this can't be right. Cause like these results have ADHD. Like I don't have ADHD. And she was like, <laughs> well, I was like, what? Like, no, I just didn't try hard enough. Like I'll go back and do it again. So I go back, I do it again. I try as hard as I can. It's like, no, wildly impulsive, wildly impulsive on this little space bar. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but then when I started talking to my general practitioner, doctor, my psychiatrist, et cetera, they were like, no, I don't think so because you have a PhD, so you're fine. And I was like, mm, no, I think that's just why it wasn't found for so long. I sometimes joke that like my anxiety was my compensatory strategy for my ADHD. And like once my anxiety resolved, like now the ADHD can come and blossom in full with all of its gifts and costs to my life. But yeah, finding a provider that will believe you when you know that you're not performing at the best of your ability. And, and what you said there is like, Lauren, about, about like, I just wasn't trying hard enough. It's mm-hmm. such a common thing because, and, and I think that's the, the, the sad thing about it. It's like frequently, if you haven't been diagnosed and you don't understand your disability, you just think you're not trying hard enough. And the reality is people, the ADHD years, like disabled people, like p- people with this, these, these invisible disabilities frequently are trying at 150% and, and, and they don't even recognize that they're going, I'm just not trying hard enough. Right? Because they're looking at yeah, everybody yeah. else. And it's not like our internal experiences are out there for everyone to see. Like, I know how hard I'm trying, but to someone else on the outside, it looks like I'm doing nothing maybe. So if you had the chance to speak to these providers who are servicing neurodivergent people and people with disabilities, what is one thing you would tell them? I think about my own training and I think about the training that I do now and and the training that I see come through my office. The reality of it is most of us in the helping profession are not well trained in working with disabilities, period. And so there is this dearth of knowledge about how to treat disabled people in a way that doesn't infantilize them or doesn't fragilize them. And the reality is like, 
but they're just humans just like everyone else. And so to be able to educate yourself, take responsibility for hearing the voices of people with lived experience and, and what that is like for what their existence is like, I think goes a long way in creating not only awareness and understanding, but some empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, like listening to autistic people describe their own experience has been life-changing and that's not the same thing as formal training but sometimes when our formal training systems have yet to catch up to lived experience we need to defer to the people with the lived experience and i think for a long time psychology in particular has sort of been like okay well disability and developmental services is one thing we're dealing with mental health that's a separate thing like stay in your lane and while there is some truth to stay in your lane, right? Don't practice outside your scope of training. There is also a need for more intersectionality in Mm -hmm. understanding the impact of disability on mental health and the impact of mental health on disability. Just like there's been a need for more intersectionality in understanding the experience of marginalized people who are not just women or just queer, right? They are intersecting identities. They have lots of identities at once. And so I hope that as a field, we're moving more in that direction, even though it is more complex, but it's also more rich. Lauren, what are you most excited for, for Lynette's presentation at the pre-conference? I have been fortunate to listen to Lynette over the years and learn from her about neurodivergence and how it intersects with issues of equity and justice. And I'm just so excited to get to hear her with the other co-presenters I'm actually most excited about their dialogue back and forth. Because like I was just saying about intersectionality, like that's that's what I'm the, I'm the most excited to watch these people have a conversation. That's what I would say. Yeah, I think very similar to Lauren. I'm really looking forward to having a dialogue with my colleagues there, kind of thinking about how our different areas of expertise intersect. I am very, very excited to be talking to more people about justice and equity for neurodivergent individuals and disabilities, because that is, a you know, the, I think, again, like the more we talk about it, the more we can at least plant the seeds of these ideas um, in people who are in the helping community, um, the more likely we are to be progressing towards a world in which we have more equity and justice for and, and for different people. I, I think I'm looking forward to a day where every trainee who comes through my training sphere is is that, yes, I actually have been exposed to ideas about disability and I do think about disabilities from a social model rather than the traditional medical model of like thinking about disabilities and deficits. So this question is for both of you, Lauren and Lynette. When you reflect on your work, what are some things that you're most grateful for? I would say the first thing I'm grateful for is that I get the chance to watch kids be brave every day, which is amazing. And I get to watch parents break generational cycles of abuse, which is so hard. And it's not always the case. Sometimes I watch generational cycles continue and sometimes kids aren't ready and and that's okay too. But I get a lot of solace from watching kids be brave and break cycles. I am incredibly grateful for my boss and my coworkers and my forensic interviewing team, they make the work doable for me, for sure. I would not be able to do it without them. 
And it's interesting because both of those things that I'm grateful for come back to people, right? And that that's actually a quote that I have on my desk at work. It's this quote that says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all. As you get used to the idea, you gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationship that saves everything. And that's a quote from Thomas Merton. And I just think about that in terms of like clinical work, in terms of my relationships with coworkers, in terms of advocacy, whether it's for child maltreatment survivors, for neurodivergent folks, it's the reality of personal relationship. Lynette? As Lauren was talking about the thing that she's grateful for, like, I think you can tell like that we're both infant mental health people because the themes are the same for me. Like the first thing that popped into mind for me are, are like all the people that I work with now. Like I like I have an incredible boss, which hasn't always been the case, by the way. I have an incredible boss. I have like incredible coworkers. Like even though I don't work directly with Laura and like she's an incredible colleague that I can get call and, and talk with. I'm so grateful for the trainees with whom I've had the privilege of working with, because even though they come to learn from me. Like I'm learning just as much from them every year that they're coming in and, and we're talking about different concepts in psychology and systems work. And I'm really just grateful for even like all my past colleagues. I like there's a bunch of people that I'm still in contact with today, all the way reaching back to when I was in community college. And they're all around the world. And it, it's it's just lovely having all these connections that I know I don't get to see or communicate with enough. If I had unlimited time and they, I, I love to just be able to just be more present in their lives. And but I know everyone's busy. So like the fact that I've had the short amounts of time I've had with each one of them, I'm super grateful for that. And if they're listening, just know that, please know that you all are always in my mind. So I'm grateful for things like Facebook, which connects me to them in, in a very small way, right? And social media. And for all of the voices of people with lived experience who are brave enough to put their stories and their experiences online, because with all of these stories, I'm learning and growing with each one that I'm exposed to. And so many things I'm grateful for. I have a cousin's trip coming up. I'm very excited about that. Excited for like my friends and family and thankful for them. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with? So I would just really... I want listeners to understand that the way that you have maybe always been taught to think about disability and neurodivergence is not the way it really truly is or has to be. Like, I am very fortunate to be parenting a neurodivergent child who has some other disabilities along with it. And like, I had no idea, I had no idea how our educational system was structured to disadvantage her, to really not, it was not built for her. It was not built with her in mind. And so I have had to kind of confront my own ableist beliefs um, and biases as I have found myself disappointed in certain parts of the educational system and wondering why I'm disappointed in that. And what was I hoping for? And what do I believe is valuable, right? And it has been such a great but messy journey of self-discovery and sort of rooting out my own internalized ableism. And I'm so grateful for that because my life has become immensely richer as a result. What I'd like to leave the listeners with is the idea that change is messy and hard. It takes time and it doesn't always feel very comfortable. 
So to just be patient of the process and to not rush it, even if you've got like all these like strong feelings about wanting to go out and change the world, know that it's a long marathon. So to be able to pace yourself, to find allies along the way who will offer you shelter and refreshments. And then there's this fabulous quote, I don't know who said it, but it's this, this idea that in a symphony, everyone has their role to play. And so if you get tired, usually there's someone else in the symphony who's carrying on that note. So you don't feel like you have to always consistently be doing the thing all the time. Rest is so important when it comes to this work of being a change maker. So just to really know these things. And I hope you all have the opportunity to be a change maker, whether it's in a big influential change the world way or change the world for someone in your tiny little circle or yourself, right? It can be on a day to day mundane basis that you, you're making change, but like never underestimate the power of just one very small act. Thank you both for being incredible change makers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As a reminder, the transcript for this episode will be on our website at citrinc.org. We have a coupon code for you to register for our very special pre-conference in the show notes. And remember to click that follow button so that you may be notified of our next episode where we will be speaking with our other two wonderful presenters. Thank you.